folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show, and what an honor it is to reconnect with somebody who uh, uh, just seems to effortlessly weave his way through the paradigm of different types of musical creation with grace and aplomb, and, uh, you know, being a professional musician is never easy, but, uh, you know, as long as you keep pushing yourself, kind of playing beyond what you know, and ultimately... Uh, serving the song and serving the artist, uh, you can find a way. Harder to do in today's in today's era, but my guest has done it prolifically over the last half century, and um, I can't wait to see him next week when the Little Feed invades Tucson, Arizona. Fred Tackett, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. It's great to be back with you, Jake, man. It's just good to hear you, man. You know, I, I just, you know, I... I I went back and listened to one of our interviews, and we were talking about <clears throat> this idea of simultaneous playing uh, or simultaneous improv- improvisation that was very prevalent in the shout choruses of the Dixieland era. Of course, you'd never see Chet Baker and, and, and Shorty Rogers soloing at the same time, but you talked about, you know, sort of the 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 newer the new jam band scene or just what the jam band scene was and how you and Paul when you play with Anders and people like that you know you 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 began to sort of take off together and I wanted you to talk about the, how that chemistry is developing with uh, Scott Sherrard. Oh, it's been working out great, man. We do uh, we do a lot of it, especially like on the very first song on Fat Bed the Bathtub we. Do we play together a lot? And it's a matter of, uh, you know, listening and uh, uh, kind of accompanying. In that situation, I'm like, basically, uh, I've already played a solo and I turn it over to Scott and he comes in and starts playing, but I don't really go away, I go away into a rhythm position. I just am playing lines that are sort of uh, accompanying what he's starting to do, you know, and then I start following him and we, you know, we follow each other up into the uh, stratosphere. Oh, I love it. God, I Go on from there, you know, so it's like kind of kind of an accompanist role where I kind of come in and then later on go, well, hey, let me add on to that with you, man. <laughs> so, and then by the end of it, we're both, you know, screaming and hollering and going crazy. <laughs> I mean... But yeah, it's a kind of a new thing, man. It's like, uh, you know, for years and years and years, you know, we did it. We never played together. I was like, I said, well, you know, one guy plays a solo, another guy plays a solo. Don't don't be stepping on my Jones here, man. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, like you said, with the kind of jam band thing, it kind of, like you said, it comes back from the old Dixieland shout choruses and stuff where everybody just started like, you know, let's all do our thing. And, uh, and uh, it's, you know, gotten back into a, a favor again, you know. You know, it's, 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 it's so beautiful because, as David Grisman said, you know, if you if you want to have a band, you need to have a gig, and uh, you need to have gigs. And Little Feet, I mean, has stood the test of time. You guys have a lot of gigs. You had gigs. You had gigs during the height of COVID. You were playing auditoriums, amphitheaters. I mean, you've. And I just, <clears throat> I wonder about you know waiting for Columbus and this tour. Uh, is it fair to say that those songs? are because of the the dual improvisation and because of the additions of Sherard and Leone that are there certain tunes that are even taking on a new life of their own from what they were when you were playing in Little Feet in the 80s and 90s? 
Well, you know, the, the, the basic form of the song, yeah, they're a little different because, uh, you know, Scott and Tony approach them a little late. You know, they, both those two have extreme, like, respect for the catalog and, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they have, like, re- researched it. So, you know, they're, they're very aware of what it is, but uh, everybody plays a little bit differently. Scott plays the uh, stuff, you know, a little differently from uh, other people, from Paul or Lowell, you know. And but on this, at uh, on occasions, uh, he will like uh, Scott will play verbatim the uh, solo from uh, Mercenary Territory. Wow. He thinks it's such a classic slice solo. Oh my he just, God. Like, he goes, "I'm going to play it note for note," you know, and he does. It's just beautiful, you know. But but. You know, ninety percent of the rest of the time, all the improvisation is just that. It's improvisation. So, and there's so much improvisation in dual theme music. So that every night, all the songs are completely, you know, different as far as all the soloing, which there's a whole lot of soloing going on. So yeah, you know, it's always different. You know, when Waiting for Columbus came out, that was a live album. That uh, those were the songs that uh, the the bands was playing live for. Like probably a year or so anyway, you know, those, those are the natural tunes that you would play live. And even before we started replicating the album, you know, uh, like the, the order of songs, we played all those songs that were on Waiting for Columbus because those are just like, you know, classic, you know, catalog, oh, little feet songs. Legend, you know? absolutely. So, that so that's how they ended up on Waiting for Columbus in the first place. So they were like, you know, the, the, you know the cool really cool coolest of the cool songs you know at that time and uh so you know we've always been playing them ever since you know i mean how can you not play with all that dream or fat man in the backup you know any of those songs on there you know so that's uh the funny thing about waiting for columbus you know it's just like it's uh, it was such a natural album because those are the live songs that you will naturally want to play I just should go back for one second and just, I, I you know, Billy Payne was the one, I mean, I was listening back and cracking up yesterday because when you and Paul, like, like you said, it was, it was uh, almost taboo to step on people's toes when they were soloing. And then Billy was like, Hey, you know, you guys should play at this, you know, be improvising together at the same time. You're like, what? You know? And then, yeah, and, yeah, and that's then, right. so it what is it? was Billy. He would say, come on, go ahead, both of you guys I, play. We and, were like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> so like, I mean, but what is like, I always find this interesting. Cause if you go back, I mean, you guys open for <clears throat> the dead a lot with, and, and, you know, with Garcia, uh, Bobby was kind of more holding the rhythm down. Phil was, I guess, more of a lead bass player, but Brent would, Brent was quite a, a prolific, um, I'd say he was soloing within the groove as well. And does, yeah. does Billy, can you talk about Billy's role when, when to, like you, like you talked about with Paul and I'm sure it's with Scott too, where if you see him going up high, you're going to go down low or vice versa. And what is, is Billy adding colors? Because ultimately it's just, you know, tack it. It's just like, to me, it's like, it's all about just like, getting higher and higher and higher and uh and taking it into the stratosphere and and those colors on the keyboard and the organ are 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 phenomenal i just wonder is billy also improvising or is he kind of uh kind of gluing it together with with tony and 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 gradney yeah he's mostly when when, when scott and i are playing together he's he's uh you know 
just doing the colors like you were talking about. Yeah, he's, but he's always improvising. I mean, you know, as uh, Billy was, I mean, when we worked with Bob Seeger, we found out that we were supposed to play things exactly like the record. And uh, we were like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> and, uh, you know, Billy was like, you know, uh, uh, Rick Vito and I, we, you know, we said, okay. We went back to the hotel and we learned all these guitar solos verbatim and everything. And Billy just said, hey, you know, I, I can't do that. I'm not <laughs> do that. You know, I mean, I, I can do it, but I'm not going to do that. Right. You know, I just don't do that. And, yeah, because, you know, Billy is just, you know, it's all free. Uh, you know, he knows the songs and, and he knows what's really cool to play because he's got great taste and he's got great musicianship. So, you know, what he plays is cool, and, you know, but it's, it, there's there's not something that he will, you know, you can count on him playing. And like there's no there's not really anybody in the band that you can count on them being doing exactly the same thing every night, you know. It's uh, you know it's always open for whatever you know. It's just uh, you count one, two, three, four, and then it's, you know here we go. Here we, we go. No, I, I mean <laughs> you know what it is. And now it's yeah. better than ever. I mean, people that we've been talking the last few days with this new uh, new additions to the band. I mean, everybody's listening really good, and we just had six weeks off, so all the songs are a little bit more fresher now. Like we haven't played together, so everybody was kind of like, you know, like woohoo. Let's go. You know, we haven't played in six weeks, so oh, so the tunes are you know are, are, are feel like more exciting and thing. And everybody's listening really good. Billy was saying last night it reminded him of when the band was first getting together and they used to rehearse and have these long jam sessions where they just improvised and you know made up all this stuff. And that's what's going on now because people are really listening to each other and there's like lots of you know little space everybody can hear all the individual things that we're doing. Kenny's playing bass solos, man. They're just insane. Dude, this is absolutely Fantastic ridiculous, you know, dude. This is all unbelievable. All of a sudden, one night, started playing a bass solo during the middle of Billy's piano solo, and, and we all just went, what? <laughs> <laughs> it was insane. He sounded like Jocko, man. That's, <laughs> see, I, I love Grady when he, oh, geez, I, I love when he does that. I mean, that is to yeah, me, like, yeah. I mean, the thing about, not that, uh, I mean, you're with these cats, but just in, in interviewing Sherard and Leone, I mean, those cats uh, are, I mean, Brother Tackett is no slouch being from North, at North Texas with Billy Harper and Bones and D Dean Parks. I mean, you, you were a jazzer to a degree, even though you decided, yeah. you know, when you're, you, you know, you weren't playing the It Club with, you know, you didn't, you weren't starving to death, but those cats, like, I mean, I got to believe that there's some, it, it's getting jazzier because those guys have a serious jazz vocabulary. And, and, and I mean, Kenny Gradney did go back and work on his playing, but I don't think anybody would really mistake him as, you know, like a, a Steve Swallow kind of player. He's not a, a pure, right. pure jazzer. Billy's definitely an amazing player, but, you know, Tony, Tony went to Hart School of Music, studied under Jackie McLean. Gerard had has a deep bag of. I mean, it's not like you guys are going to bust out into a bebop tune, but it's almost. I mean, do you feel like? Do, do you feel like in some ways, um, you guys can even take it farther than anything you've done before, just because those cats have that language. 
Yeah, yeah, they definitely, it just uh, opens it up. We are, you know, I always say Little Feast like a, a rock and roll band that, that, that plays like a jazz That's band right. with all the improvisation. But we're definitely a rock and roll band, you know. Uh, you know, and so, but it, uh, Tony's like, uh, you know, he's played with Lou Donaldson. It's he's ridiculous. Like he's come up playing with all the cats, man. So he, and, and, and those two, they know every uh, record that's ever been made. We sit in the back and we play stuff I've never heard in my life. I love you it, know, dude. Scott's going, hey, man, you got to dig this guitar player, man. Some guy plays with Bill Doggett, you know. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, we, these guys, you know, they can tell you what they've had, you know, what they had for lunch on the recording session and, you know, what day it was recorded, what, you know, everybody on the record. And if they don't, they can go into the internet and tell you what it is in like a matter of seconds, you know. I wonder who's the bass player on that. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, that was so-and-so, you know, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And so, it's, uh, yeah, that's amazing. But yeah, they have the vocabulary. So even though it's a rock rock band, they have the ability and they, it just inside knowledge in their head. You know, they know they, inside them, you know, inside their brain, they know uh, all that stuff. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's just like the potential is always there to go any any kind of direction you want. Man. Um, yeah, they, they're definitely like, uh, you know, schooled in the jazz. I mean, you know, Tony, probably more than Scott. You know, Scott's like a guy that just uh, grew up playing the blues, man, you know, when he was 15, 16 years old and, uh, you know, he went into to Minneapolis. I don't know if you're like familiar with this guitar player, uh, Greg Cock from Milwaukee. I don't know that guy. No. Yeah, he's a, just a virtuoso guitar player. That's you know that that's, has been a good friend of ours forever, and uh, one of the few people that knows how to play the Texas Twister lick. <laughs> and right. he says, uh, you know, Scott went to him when he was like you know fifteen or sixteen years old to take a guitar lesson, and Greg goes, you know, you don't need a guitar lesson, you need a gig. <laughs> got him in a band, you know. So uh, you know, he, he he comes up through the blues, but I mean, he knows. He, he he just got fantastic ears and he knows all that you know he can play you know jazz and stuff but we like we like you know you never hear us really playing bebop tunes or anything it's all basically the you know no i think you guys could pull off some serious jazz, though I, jazz stuff totally know? but i mean you know even the side gigs he plays when when little feet's not on the road sometimes he'll pull mm-hmm. out you know grant green tunes like he can burn that stuff oh yeah up, you no, know? he's all about the grant green and that kind of that's what i'm talking about kind of that funk you know funk, soul yeah. jazz Love you know? <laughs> like hank crawford man you know I, I, that was my period of jazz that i really i mean i love all of it you know i love all of it but uh one of my favorite things when, when when it was in you know the '60s, I guess, and when it started getting into the to the soul jazz stuff, man. And you had Grant Green, and you had uh, Hank Crawford, and, and Fathead Newman, and just you know all that kind of stuff, man. Where it was funky blues, man, but gone into just a little more. You know, you know, it was interesting. It just popped into my head, but um, when you were. Uh, you know, when you moved to Oklahoma City, playing with Joe Davis, or even North Texas, did was the um, because the soul jazz element actually. I mean, Gene Ammons, uh, you know, uh, Don Patterson, you know, so much of that had to do with the fact that uh, for the first time in a nightclub, the organ was present. You know, you had organs in the nightclub, which they came out of the church, and uh, I was wondering, like, was when you first started to gig on the bandstand, was the organ 
like a a staple of the of the of the musicians in terms of the instrumentation of it or um because that that was right in the late 60s when you know Les McCann compared to what but that was all kind of intermeshing of the sanctified sound with you know traditional post bop kind of stuff yeah exactly man the uh, I must have carried uh, help carry you know <laughs> hundreds of B3s oh man <laughs> you guys had a hearse there, maybe yeah you know? I, oh man jeez <laughs> and tied them onto the back of like uh, pickup trucks and stuff like that you know <laughs> tried to get them around but yeah man I mean if you could get your hands on them on a B3 it was definitely in the cards man you know <laughs> that was the deal and a big old Leslie man you know I know they got the sounds built into a synthesizer, but you know, during the sixties and seventies, they, you know, it was all about carrying those B threes around and, you know, they're hard to find anymore now. Well, I, you know, um, there was, I, I went through your discography, which by the way, with the Seeger gig, you guys rehearsed for three weeks. Did it take you three weeks to like sort of, train yourselves to play the tune in a rote fashion? Like, is that why you rehearsed for three weeks with him? You know, in terms of playing the song the exact same way on the record? Well, I think they had it, they had it uh, you know, they had it booked out that way. And uh, I guess Bob just wanted to rehearse for three weeks. It was only a surprise when we were playing old time rock and roll and uh, Punch Andrews, Bob's manager, comes running down the you know, to the stage where we were rehearsing, we were rehearsing in some old theater, and uh, he goes, "What song was that you were playing?" And we're going, you know, old time rock yeah. and roll, it's like a Chuck Berry song. You know, we're playing Chuck Berry, and uh, and uh, he's like, "No, that's not the song." <laughs> like, well, oh, what do you mean? You know, and he goes, "That's the solo on the record." And we went, "No," <laughs> and he was like, "Oh, you got to do that," and that was a total surprise to all of us. You know, Rick Vito, Billy Payne myself we were like what are you what are you talking about never heard of that but apparently when i was talking to some of my heavy metal friends that that is very uh you know the thing you need to play it exactly like the album on all the heavy metal bands play the, the songs you know verbatim from the record and i was like wow okay never thought about that before <laughs> you know? so yeah that's how that all came about and i you know that's, that was, that secret game was funny because, I mean, all the time we're rehearsing, we're saying, can we get an itinerary for the tour? Like, what, where are we going? What are we going to be doing? And they were like, there isn't one, you know. <laughs> they were booking stadiums. I mean, they were booking, like, uh, you know, big arenas just on a two-weeks basis, you know. I guess because he has so much power, you know, to sell out those places that uh, he could do that. But, I mean, you know, they didn't have the gigs booked. They were just like... Say okay, I think we're going to do another week, and they book a week of kicks, and they'd say okay, I think we'll do another week. And it was like the tour was on and off every week. You never knew if this, you know you would come down to the lobby to go to soundcheck and find out if there was going to be any more gigs. So <laughs> it was. I've never been in a situation like that. Even with Bob Dylan and people, they had the whole tour booked out. But Seeger was like, eh, "Let's see how it goes. We'll do a few days." <laughs> yeah, he's like, "I can just fill." Up. Yeah, he's like, "I'll just fill up arenas uh, in, within you know, sell out in twenty four hours." Because that was really the beginning of the big stadium rock concert era, that mid eighties. So he could just like, yeah, I just couldn't believe he could do it. But I was like, what? <laughs> you don't have a gig book, but you could just call up somebody and say, let me book the forum. <laughs> you know, and he could do it. Right. Yeah. 
So, yeah, you know, that was odd. But, yeah, we rehearsed for three weeks, Dad. It was like forever in Detroit. <laughs> well, it must have seemed like forever. I mean, I just can't it imagine. Was. Yeah, I mean, and Billy, I'm surprised Billy was able to stay on the gig considering he was not able to do it. The, the, the rote, you know, so, you know and, and I wonder really, you know, that's, that's just the issue I have with, uh, I, I guess there's validity in that kind of music, and I know you're trying to, I mean, clearly, if you're selling out a 70,000-seat stadium, you want to play the hits for the fans. But I just feel like most people, I mean, they're going to dig it no matter what. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the idea of having to play it exactly this. I mean, I realize, that, I mean, everyone deals with these things in different, not even music, just workplace environment, just, you know, bosses who want things done their way and that kind of stuff. But in music... I just, I, did you find yourself, have you ever found yourself in another situation? I mean, you, you toured, I mean, you did a lot of work with, you know, Bonnie Raitt, uh, obviously. Little Feet was completely improvisational rock and roll band. Um, I mean, the stuff you and Paul have done, obviously we've talked about, just sort of soaring into the, into the, uh, in the intergalactic, did you have you found yourself? Did you find yourself in situations like that, or was Seeger kind of an out? No, I mean the Bob Seeger gig was the only gig I've ever been on where you know it was such a rigid, you know, format. You know, every if we would play "Come to Papa," <laughs> I'd be playing the the, the, the wah wah pedal thing, and uh, you know, Punch would come up to me and say, "Hey, man, Come to Papa was really great last night." And I'm going, "Punch, it's exactly the same as it was every other night." Man. Come on, exactly. Punch, dude! It was like playing classical music. Yeah, the man. Experience I had, you know, where it was verbatim like that was playing classical music. You know, so I was studying these guitar solos and guitar parts like they were classical music parts and, you know, figuring out the, the timbre of the tone and the, all this kind of details and things, you know, because it was the same notes every night, you know. But I've never come across it in any other situation, not with Dylan, not with him. Well, you know, Bob is just a, the same way as Little Feet. People always go, you know, he doesn't sing the melody of his song. So it's about, he doesn't ever sing the, same, the song the same way. And uh, I would say he's he's improvising, he's like, uh, <laughs> like a saxophone player. Absolutely. Uh, at the museum yesterday, there was a film clip of us playing uh, with the band I was in, mm. Uh, mm. doing "Blowing in the Wind," and and he, you know, he was just way up singing in a whole other register of you know singing like a third above, but singing within the chord changes and singing the words. And uh, it was just totally like he was a saxophone or a trumpet player playing. Something. He was singing like beautiful melodies that, that uh, fit the chord changes with the words, but they didn't have that much to do with the maybe the rhythm of the melody was a, a little was the same. But you know, he was singing totally different notes, and people, you know, people like George Harrison would say, "You should do blowing in the wind like, exactly the way people want to hear it, like the record." And he was like. No, you know, <laughs> dude, that and that, those, yeah. those, and now he's yeah. got a system going. You know that people are, you know, get freaked out about what they're practically doing free improvisation with a certain. He's gotten this kind of jazz thing that the band plays, where they, you know, kind of just they don't play the chord changes of the song; they just play this sort of thing he's got. You know, they've got together, and nobody else really understands, but the band knows, and Bob improvises on the top of it singing the words to the song but i mean 
you know, that has to be so tripped out. Masters of War. It didn't sound anything like <laughs> Masters of War. That's what they're doing. They're like doing like they're playing Albert Eyler tunes or something, and and Bob singing over them. You know, uh, dude. So I mean, very, that's very like adventure you know? I mean, you that is the age where you can you know I can do whatever I want. You know, so he's not going to go out there and sing "Blowing in the Wind" every night. You know, like he does. He goes out and just takes it out, man. It's totally artistic, totally great, very jazz-like, you know. Well, and, you know, just because that seems, I mean, for the musicians, you have to get yourself off if you're, if the audience is going to get off. So ultimately, you've been playing, I mean, that that run, I, I still, to this day, I, you know, I, I Bob, I mean, the, the man is just an avatar in some ways, but that whole deal and i realized it was coming from a very heartfelt place and you know keltner told me he he wouldn't smoke cigarettes on stage and you know or you know like you know he was like but the the way the tempos of a lot of those famous tunes were totally different the group was just so it, it, it just i it's my favorite period of dylan i i I really need to get to that museum. Um, but I, you know... Oh, you love it, man. It's insane how good it is. You know, th- there's uh, there's a couple cats I wanted to ask you about. Uh, just being a drummer, these guys have a tendency to get overlooked a lot. Um, but I know you played with all of them. And in fact, this one guy, the first guy I wanted to ask you about, do you remember when you first started to uh, to play with Victor Feldman? I'm trying to, oh, you know, the first gigs that I did with Victor Feldman were always like uh, uh, Clint Eastwood. Oh, uh, boy. Oh, gigs. boy. Yes. And this guy, uh, he would always be on those and playing percussion. But, you know, Victor was, you know, an amazing piano player, but at the same time, he was also this amazing percussionist who got all the studio work, you know, playing vibes and different kind of percussion instruments. And, uh, that I first started like running into him doing movie dates, you know. It was I was telling the cast last night we were doing something where uh, we was just me and him on a Clint Eastwood, and it was like some kind of romantic scene, and it was like you know a nylon string, you know, <laughs> classical guitar and and vibes, and, uh, <laughs> and Victor's counting it off the the cue, and he would go one. <laughs> Two, <laughs> you know, see how nervous I would get and stuff like that. Great sense of humor, but yeah, he did that. And then you know, uh, we did the Tom Waits uh, Swordfish Trombone That's right. together, and he's the you know to me he was the secret sauce on that. Man. I mean, he's came up with such amazing shit that uh, you know people don't ever notice all that much. I just saw. A, uh, thing on YouTube the other day, where a guy did a thing of all the guitar players that have ever played with Tom Waits, and did clips and stuff, but nobody really mentions Victor Feldman. And you, you tell them, and they kind of go, "Oh, really?" They don't even remember he's on that record, but he's like the he's the secret sauce on that record, man. And uh, you know, I got to do uh, um, direct to disc record that he asked me to play with him, where he played piano and Hubert Laws played the flute. Wow. Probably one of the only jazz records I ever got to play on. How did you yeah. feel in that? Because, you know, I've seen, I didn't realize you were on that record. I, I don't think I'll ever pass up that record. I mean, did you feel, were, were you, 
were you channeling, uh, you know, Johnny Smith and Wes, or how did you feel you fit into that whole scene? Because that I is was playing kind of like more like Bossa Nova kind of stuff. You know, I was thinking more like Gabor Zabo. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, totally. Like that. But Bossa Nova's kind of thing was the kind of groove that was going on in that. You know. You know, the 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 soundtrack thing is fascinating because when I talked to Joe Parcaro, rest in peace, he, he yeah. you know, he would talk about being on these movie dates and, you know, they'd be, you know, playing the movie on a screen and then the cats would be playing to that scene based on what it called for. And, you know, you talked about this du- du- duet with Feldman in a romantic scene, but, like, with Eastwood films, would you guys wind up, as of um, an ensemble in the studio playing to a uh, essentially a silent uh, video projection. Well, you know they would be, um, you know, usually on those they would show it, but I'm the only guy that's really watching it. Doctor <laughs> guy. Yeah, you know, right, right, uh, right. Whoever's conducting the session to make sure everything's like syncing up right, you know. But pretty much, you know, it's all written out. I mean not written out note for note, but the chord changes and everything, you know, the whole cue is orchestrated. So it's not being improvised. It's not like when Neil Young does a soundtrack and he, or, or yeah. Miles Davis is famous, uh, you know, step to the elevator to the scaffold where they just improvise off the scene. They were all written out cues, you know, they were organized cues. They just had to make sure they started and stopped at the right time. So that was, you know, we weren't like, nope. The guys in the band weren't watching the screen and playing along. We were, you know, listening to a click track in our earphones, following the director, you know, but he was like making sure that it fit the screen and all that. Fit to like, you know. I did. Yeah. Did you, did you, would you go, I mean, I'm not sure when you actually, well, no, of course you told me the story, legendary story of being in Hawaii and being discovered by Jimmy Webb and then, or his people, and then coming back to mm-hmm. L.A. But did you ever go to, uh, like, because Victor, just, I mean, he, that dude was playing with, like, Scotty LaFaro, like, in the late 60s. Like, the, the, he was making insane. Did you ever go to see those cats at Shelly's Manhole? The other, the other two cats I wanted to ask you about was another drummer, Larry Bunker, and then the classic percussionist, Milt Holland. Those guys were, like, vaudeville funky dude they were the funkiest dudes ever man mm-hmm. and yeah like, yeah i just those again movie dates was when i would see either one of those guys either one Billy bunker or occasion and uh and uh because i was big fans from listening to records all the time but uh they were like uh i was my run-ins with them was all usually through movie dates you weren't you weren't people. like after the after a long not, day not the, record dates Right, but I mean, you weren't like. I have to believe that after a long day in the in the studio, you might want to go over to Shelley's manhole and see like freaking Gary Burton's quartet or you know. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. Did I you? Used to, I used to have living basically walking distance of Shelley's manhole. Oh my god! And, uh, went there a lot, man. <laughs> I saw uh, Mose Allison there several times, and I saw uh, Miles there. I mean, a classic Miles. I don't know how. I think. Jimmy Webb knew Shelley's man, knew, knew Shelley, man, pretty well. And mm. Uh, mm. I think he got us free tickets because, <laughs> I mean, my whole band went down for every night of the Miles Davis residency at Shelley's man. He had Tony Williams playing drums, and we were sitting like 
like less than a foot that away is from, so from, uh, so, I from Tony Williams, man. <laughs> you know, like this little, they had a little bar, like a three-seat bar that was like parallel to the drums in the, on the bandstand. And that's where we would come in and sit. And uh, I have all these friends of mine now. They say, you know, I couldn't get into any of those shows. But I was all in. So we must have had some special dispensation from Jimmy that I don't really remember. But we went to all those shows and we got to, you know, talk to Tony Williams and, and hang out. And yeah, it was Shelley's was like kind of like, like you said, it was our neighborhood bar. Well, know? and the other thing, Tackett, that I freaking love about that time, I don't know why it made so much sense, but. You know, like today, <clears throat> you know, you go to a, I, this is more related to like a jazz club, but you'll go see a set and then there'll be this intermission and then they'll play another set. But with Shelly's, dude, Shelly's band was insane. So they would, I mean, I don't need to tell you this, but like Miles would play a set and then instead of having intermission, Shelly's band would play. So you'd basically get like six full sets of music. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that yeah, and that to me it makes I mean that to me is brilliant because I don't want an intermission. I just want to keep gro- right. grooving, you know? Mhm. Yeah, I did uh when I was 10 years old and I went to Birdland. I got to see uh Count Basie on one night and uh Dizzy Gillespie the other oh, night. Oh, wait, hold on. Tell me, hold on. 10 years old you wound up in New- Wait, how did you get to New York? Your folks took you? Yeah, yeah, my my, you know, like my older brother, who's six years older than me, was a trumpet player. Wow. Was a big, you know, he like, you know, he really liked uh, all the East, the West Coast guy. He was a Shelly, uh, Shelly man. He loved uh, Chet Baker. He loved Shorty Rogers. Oh yeah, and Chico Hamilton and all that kind of stuff. But you know, and, and my father was, you know, big jazz fan, and so I grew up just listening to jazz. So we went to New York. We had relatives living in Cold Springs. Harbor and uh, that's Long Island, baby. That's Jake Feinberg to, territory. To yeah, we, we stayed at the uh, oh god, Albert Hotel. Absolutely, know, my mom planned this all out. So we got we found a weekend where we went, and one you know, one night was like Count Basie with uh, Terry Gibbs's group opening up. So oh. there was like you said, Count Basie play a set, or Terry Gibbs would play a set, and Count Basie would play a set, and Terry Gibbs would play another set, and Count Basie would play another set. And the next night it was George Sharing would play a set, and then Dizzy Gillespie Oh my God, that's so freaking great. And George Sharing again. It was some, you know, it was fabulous. And, and little Pee Wee Marquette was like, you know, standing at my table, standing next to me the whole night. <laughs> Because I couldn't drink, so they kept bringing me cheeseburgers, and cokes. And yeah, no, you were in the peanut there. gallery. Yeah, I, no, see, and that's said, oh, you're the youngest guy to ever come into Birdland. <laughs> and he would stand there and say, "See that guy? That's Prez. That's Lester Young. Wow. Like a good looking man. He's a cat. You know, he was pointing out all these guys and." Dizzy Gillespie asked me if I wanted to go on the road with him and to South America. My mother was like, "Say yes, say yes." Dude, was he serious? He wasn't serious, was he? So it was an insane experience. And when I came back to to Little Rock, Arkansas, it was like the the day that, like you know, uh, Jerry Lewis put out. They put out, uh, you know, Highway Confi- uh, High mm. School Confidential mm. and. Uh, and uh, Elvis and all, you know, rock and roll, which just all of a sudden took over. And, you know, I, I had seen Bill Haley in the comments on, uh, comments on TV 
and was, you know, digging, you know, see you later, alligator, that stuff. But all of a sudden, there was like Elvis, and there was like, uh, you know, a whole lot of shaking going on and all that. It was like, I came back from being the jazz guys, and it was like, hey, here's a whole new world starting right now, you know, in the fifth, fourth, fifth grade, you know. I mean... So it was a wild time, man. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, this is a guy that I, I have to believe you collaborated with... Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, over time, he it was Louis Shelton, uh, dear a, a good friend, great cat, amazing guitar player, and he he said that. Um, let's see if I can find the quote here. He said, "Growing up in Little Rock, we had this drive-in movie theater, which was just a few blocks from my house. On top of the concession stand, we would get people like Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, and these early rockers. We could just watch them for free. I mean, do you do, could you do you remember seeing cats just?" Going going off on concession stands and just having the ability to see these at the time they weren't famous, but they were creating a whole new brand of music. You know? Yeah. No, I never. Uh, you know, I saw uh, I saw Jerry Lee Lewis when he was playing at a you know at the, the Robinson Auditorium. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and, right. Right. And, uh, I never saw. I mean, I saw a lot of bands that did play on top of malt shops and stuff like that. Drive in theaters and stuff that was a, definitely a, a kind of a gig my brother's band played on on top of a you know some mall shop and stuff and i remember very well that is but so freaking classic famous doing that but i you know i saw jerry lee lewis when you know he was you know playing the upright piano and the uprights spin it you know <laughs> and pushing that sucker over the edge it was you know just a trio drums upright bass and jerry lee lewis and he came out with his hair all perfect and within 30 seconds i mean it was this flying <laughs> crazy scene going on his hair is flying around in circles it was just like i had never and we were standing right above them in the balcony behind the band looking straight down on them <laughs> it was just like wow couldn't believe it we were playing a gig with our high school band uh in another part of the auditorium is like kind of a, you know a party before the actual real show sure and uh i got to see him i got to see uh, uh roy orbison ooby dooby when that came out with uh there was a trio of johnny cash the tennessee trio whatever they Tennessee three yeah and, uh, roy orbison and the carl perkins wow. on, a, on a show and i got to see uh, to little richard and uh, when he was you know, rocking it when right when Madras Shorts came out because they had Madras Shorts on with garter belts <laughs> and tuxedo tops. It was insane. But yeah, you know, I don't know if I ever told you, but my brother had tickets to go see Elvis, and I'm a you know huge Elvis fan from the get go. And my brother was a jazzer, you know. He didn't, but he had his girlfriend, and he got tickets to go see Elvis, and. uh I was like, hey, man, you don't dig Elvis. Let me go with your girlfriend. You don't understand, dude. What's the po whole point of this operation? Right, exactly, dude. You know? But my mother said, well, you know, the next rock show that comes to town, you know, I'll take you to go see. And it turned out to be Little Richard. Whoa. <laughs> you know, the rest was history, man. I was hooked. Would you say that, I just, you know, going back, so not that you ever left your love of jazz but when you came back from birdland and this whole new rock and roll r&b uh you know it was just sort of in coming into the lexicon um did you sort of like uh i mean you fell full bore into 
you kind of wanted to become a rock star at that point. You you never had uh, you love jazz, but you were not. You basically got pulled away from that whole dizzy sort of jazz scene and and got sucked into rock and roll. No, what happened was I had this totally schizophrenic thing. I played drums in jazz bands. And I played guitar in rock bands. I think, I mean, I need, rock, I need tapes of that. Too. You know, I need, my rocker yeah. friends didn't know that I played drums. <laughs> and my drummer, you know, my jazzer friends that I played in trios at, at the Air Force Base and the officers' clubs and, you know, playing all this cool jazz kind of standards and stuff, they had no idea that I played uh, guitar in a rock band, you know, <laughs> until I was... Uh, in Oklahoma City going to college and the leader of the Joe Davis came over to my apartment and saw my guitar and said, what's, what's up with the guitar? And I said, well, yeah, you know, I play the rock and roll guitar thing. And he said, oh, wait a minute, man. You're going to, and that was when Bossa Novas first started. So he's going, you got to learn some Bossa Novas and I'll play the drums and you can come up front and play the guitar. And he's the first guy that got me to actually, actually play two instruments at the same time. But otherwise I played classical trumpet rock and roll guitar and jazz drums and they were totally separate with totally separate bands totally separate friends and you know the whole thing joe's the one that finally said that's you know no man you gotta play all these yeah you know what's so funny (laughs) is that you would never be able to be that anonymous today with all the social media you'd be getting videotaped playing classical trumpet and they'd be like what is tackett doing he's playing all these different instruments yeah. but all your friends yeah, now these... it's uh, everything's you know everybody knows everything <laughs> exactly the, the, you know the the one thing i wanted the floor is yours but um i when i interviewed Bl- <laughs> hal blaine rest in peace he 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 talked about and i just think it's instructive to know like some of these really iconic names uh, these uh, some of these cats uh, you know, specifically, uh, I, I wanted you to talk, you know, he said like Dennis Wilson did not play drums on the Beach Boys records. He, he did. Blaine did. Um, yeah. you, you did this iconic album with Dennis Wilson, which I love. You were on it. And I just wanted to know like what that experience, well, first of all, how, did, I mean, did you know him? Did you know Dennis back I don't know when the gym. No, no, I, it was all through Van Dyke Parks because Van Dyke knew all you know knew the Beach Boys different <laughs> where they liked right. him that much or not, but I think Dennis did. So uh, I think uh, Van Dyke is actually I don't know if he just played piano or produced uh, you know Kokomo for that. You know I remember going down and doing that, and then from that I got called for the Dennis Wilson project with me and David uh, Cohen playing guitars. And uh, I think most of that was through Van Dyke. But like, De- like, Den- like, what was Dennis's? I mean, what was his role? I mean, did he? It says he did play some instrumentation, but I mean, was what was his? It just strikes me as just. I mean, in, in a lot of music today, there's. I mean, there's a lot of pop musicians today that actually are just like they don't even have the chops to play live, you know. And there's a lot of that that stuff too, but. I mean, what did that? Much, it's just—it's just so interesting. I'm trying to figure out what his role was. Uh, well, he played live. You know, he played. He was in the—you know—in the band, and that was the, the main gig of the Beach Boys before they—you know—started having all the hit records. They was—they were playing gigs, but there was this thing in L.A. for many. I mean, not just in L.A. in, in pop music, right? It's, I guess it was—you know. 
carryover from pop music, not jazz, but from pop music. Whereas, you know, you would use Glenn Campbell did the same thing. Johnny Rivers did the same thing. They would have this, you know, great band that played with them on the road or the V band for the birds. Same with the Buffalo Springfield and the birds when they first made their first records, uh, Hal Blaine and, and Joe Osborne and all these guys were playing the actual album and, uh, and the band guys, because they, you know, studio players were considered the good guys and, you know, the other, the band, you know, the road band or the other members of the band weren't as good as they were. Right, so they right. Hire, you know, uh, you know, hire studio guys to come play the actual record. And, and then it got to be like, you know, like bands like the Monkees and stuff started saying, hey, I want to play on my own record. <laughs> You know, you know, and everybody was, uh, you know, same with the birds and Buffalo Spring was like, hey, I want to play guitar. I don't need to have uh, Mike Gacy play guitar. You know? Right, so, right. Uh, but that was the thing. It was like, you know, they they didn't trust their, their regular band. They had to get the studio guys. And that probably has something to do with record companies saying, you know, you got to use the cats, man. You know? but, well, I'm curious about yeah, when, when did that, like, that was it I, not that maybe you i don't know if you went to see them live like beach boys and stuff but was there like clearly you guys are the studio sharks i mean you were the cats but was how big a difference i mean again going back to the seeger analogy of playing the song exactly the way it is on the record if you have you know tackett and or osborne and nectal and all these guys just nailing these hits i mean was there a discernible difference when the cats from the actual band would play live i mean it might have been it sounds like it might have could have been a mess well yeah but i mean back in in those days the backing tracks were not complicated you right. know songs right. weren't that complicated so the you know the there was no reason why the road band or the actual real band couldn't have played it in the first place they already knew it it's just it was this superstition <laughs> that you needed to have the <laughs> professional dudes play it instead so it was no problem for them to like, you know, emulate whatever the the studio guys did because it wasn't that complicated. You know, it wasn't right. like there was virtuoso guitar parts or drum parts going on. It was just playing the song. And they thought, well, these guys have a good sound and, you know, they know how to use a studio and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, very soon when the 60s started coming along, you know, uh, that's kind of was a '50s mentality, and then you know, and it kind of went on for a while. There's still, there's probably still artists that will, you know, come in and probably a lot of country bands, you know, some famous artists, you know, they'll come in and hire the Nashville Cats and not use their road band when their road band could probably play it better than the Nashville Cats because they know the songs better, <laughs> you know. So uh, it was a thing that once you started having like the Birds, the Buffalo Springfield, the Beatles, you know, you 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 know you had like because you remember when Ringo came in, it was like oh, you can't use Ringo, you're going to have to get a, another guy or something <laughs> to come in and play, you know. It's, it, it, that stuff just all went out the window. It's like all the bands were like, I want to play my, I'm here to play my own music. It's a whole new freedom of. Uh, what was happening in the 60s it changed all of that but it was like a 50s mentality of you have to use the professional studio musicians right the the the, the uh i mean there were i mean those cats could play anything and, and do it so well but you're right it was it also speaks to just sort of the how much power i mean how what a what a factory the studios were and and how much it was like no we got to use the guys that were 
you know, we're paying salary to in these studios to make the, you know, to make, it's, it's almost anathema because I can't even imagine a band today, I mean, not necessarily, you know, just, I don't care what, what genre, but the the idea that they wouldn't, that the band wouldn't actually go in and record with the same cats that are in the band, you know, it's just funny that that, that would go down. It, I mean, I remember asking how, though, you know, what it felt like because, you know, he didn't get accompany his credits bones how fought for that but it didn't come along till later i mean you wouldn't see this the studio sharks who were on the beach boys records and yeah and how was like you know man he's like he's like man i we were all moving up in life we were getting cars we were able to support our families there was so much work it didn't really matter that dennis wilson was getting all the accolades or that he was you know it was unknown who was playing i mean it was it was fascinating because i feel like my generation and younger are more insecure about that kind of stuff. Like I, you know, we people would want to have credit for if they played the drums on a on a major hit. You know. Yeah. No. At that time, uh, well, everybody I'm sure would have liked it, but it was just you know nobody expected to ever be recognized. It was you knew <laughs> you knew your place. You know? Yeah, I did, man. <laughs> And so it was only later on that they started giving people credits for who was on the record, you know, and all that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Tackett, Fred Tackett is in so many different buckets of music. And, um, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's Dylan with Spooner and Keltner or Little Feet. Um, but, you know, the, this little communal group of guys that, you know, they, 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 they played at the Open Door Mission, uh, and that's where Andre Crouch discovered, you know, Maxwell, Fletch Wiley, uh, Harlan Rogers, Hadley Hawkinsmith, and you know, you wound up on a Crouch record. But did you know those guys when you were with Joe Davis, or how, like, or did you meet yeah. them? You you knew? Yeah, I knew. Uh, yeah. I, I uh, drove Billy Maxwell to his high school graduation. <laughs> no, well, that, I mean, you, you, there was also the idea that I think either he sold, you sold him some weed, or he gave you, I don't know, I forget who. who That's what he said, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember that, but it's very possible. <laughs> yeah, so you drove him, so I mean, what, can you, do you remember the open door mission? I mean, this is like, and this and this preacher, I gotta get this cat's name, but he. No, I don't, I didn't know any of those guys, I knew them before they had, you know, found religion, man, they were in a band called the Jades in Oklahoma City, and, uh. You know, it's a, you know, Harlan played, you know. Oh, my God. Hammond Monster, dude. You know, I was, you know, I'm in Tulsa right now, and uh, yesterday I had a lot back to go to the Bob Dylan Museum, the people that took us around. Sure. But these guys that, like, uh, you know, were my age, and they all knew Billy and Harlan and all these people from, when they changed their name to Third Avenue Blues. Blues Band, band that's exactly but, right. You know, and... Uh, we were talking about all those guys, Hadley and, uh, you know, Hadley Hawk Smith and Harlan and, and Billy. And they were, you know, it was like a, they were just a, you know, a bar, you know, really great bar. Oh, my God. And I would have freaking lost my mind. Every, yeah. Like on our night off, we would go hang out at their club. You know, on their nights off, they'd come hang out with us. And that was the kind of relationship we had. They weren't like, you know going to church or anything at that point it was only after they came out to la and billy got involved with in harlan i don't know i don't i really don't even know the story of how they got into the religious thing well you know what i mean in in, in the cliff notes version is that basically 
you know, they were all scuffling. Uh, Hadley, I mean, they were all, Hadley was drinking turpentine, almost killed himself. I mean, this guy, I mean, these guys were really, Bill was really, <clears throat> he was playing with like Barefoot Jerry, you know, a lot of drugs, obviously. And then, you know, ultimately they started, they cleaned up, they sobered up, uh, they found God. And then they, they were playing at this essentially uh, halfway house for drunks and, you know, uh, homeless people and, I mean, obviously they were playing really heavy music. It was before synthesizers. It was really deep blues and, you know, and 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 then Andre Crouch came in there and he was like, well, I, I really think that this is the band I want. I mean, yeah. it, it was, it, I mean, and I'm not like a zealot and I don't like dogma, but I, for some reason with, especially with Billy, a man, when he talks about Christianity, it's like, it's the right kind, you know. It's like a, there's a selflessness to it. Um, yeah, yeah. No, they were real. The real deal. You they know? were the like, real. Yeah, Dylan was the real deal when he was doing it. He would always talk about spirit churches as opposed to like. Yeah, he's like, I want the. Know, he's like, I hate those mega churches, man. Uh, yeah, man. Church or whatever, you know. He was talking about little churches and stuff like that, where they where it was the real deal, where they actually were. You know, following what Jesus said and, and stuff, rather than just spouting off the dogma. But they were actually living a life, you know. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I was totally uh, did not, you know, I just Billy started calling me up for Andre Crouch and Danny Bell, who was Andre's sister. And uh, it's funny, you know, there's a drummer named Harry Wilkinson that played with the Eleventh House with. Uh, oh with, my! Uh, Wait, is he Larry still? Coriel. Is he still with us? Uh, is he still around? Yeah, yeah. I talked to him just. Dude, you're gonna have. I need you to hook. I need to talk to Harry, man. I cannot believe, dude. He was a. He's a sick drummer, man. Oh yeah. So he called me up the other day. I mean, when I was in Nashville doing this Ryman Auditorium thing, he came by the show and left me a couple of his CDs, <laughs> and we started talking on the phone. And he said that he had like moved across the street uh, from some church, and he heard music coming out of it. So he went over there and, and, and started, it was a funky band, and he started playing drums with him, man, and he said, like, you know, then he got into it, and he said, man, says, when I was out in L.A. living at your house and stuff, he says, uh, you know, you were always talking about going and playing these Andre, you know, I would say, where are you going? I said, well, you know, I'm just going to go play this gospel recording session, and he didn't think anything about it. He said, that was Andre Crouch. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize you were playing with Andre. Those are great records, Dude, man. you know, I now just... he's all about all these records from the 70s that we made with Andre and Danny Bell. I was like, man, I had no idea that's what you were talking about when you said you were doing gospel sessions. <laughs> yeah. I just found... I just found the Danny Bell record. It's un... I forgot you're all over that record, dude. It's un... Yeah, it, it's so good, man. I don't yeah, know. He would hire the Wild Wild Watson. He had, you know, Dan, uh, Billy just had the best cast. Man. Oh, my you know? God. It was uh, Dean Parks. I mean, it, it, it never stopped. I mean, uh, that that's the thing, Tackett. I mean, you know, you're just like, you know, I saw these pictures that, you know, Leone and Sherrard threw up. And, you know, I'm like, I, I don't know, man. I mean, like, you're such a, a beautiful cat to root for. And I feel like, you know, it's not like we're rooting for you to succeed. You've succeeded over and over again, but you know, you've always just sort of, I just wonder how you cultivate and find that inspiration and spirit today, regardless. I mean, you don't have to go to church or synagogue or, you know, but, but to me, like, 
I realize church is on the bandstand, you know, and I, and I, you know, that, and you, and you have plenty of times when you're in a sanctified setting, but I mean, how do you, how do you find, how do you search, seek inspiration to, you know, especially on a, you know, if it's a clunker show or it's kind of dragging a little bit, or have you just kind of at a point at this point now, especially coming out of COVID, are you just grateful and, and, about just having the opportunity to play. I'm, I'm just, to me, it's like, no, no matter what, like, we're just going through this, like, agonizing time in our, in, in the world, really. And, uh, yeah. and I just, you, you know, know we just, we just think like, you know, it's something about little feet is like this, uh, the flying Dutchman or something. We like, <laughs> feel like we're traveling on our bus and the rest of the world is like going to hell and we sort of like, scooting <laughs> yeah there's like flames everywhere you're driving through it people still want to hear some music in the middle of all this horror Ugh, <laughs> you know geez. and you know we've always pointed out like you know a majority of our fans are like you know crazy republicans if you actually sat down with them and said you know hey what do you think about this and that but it's not it's all about music i mean james carville always famously said you know republicans throw much better parties and no, they don't they do they yeah, like to get they down have, man they have better music better food so you know we end up having this audience <laughs> like we're playing in tulsa oklahoma where that's and i were in uh you know we're in fort smith Arkansas. oh i love yeah you're all you're in yeah we're not in a liberal back you're in the red states dude you're love the band <laughs> they all know that we're like knee-jerk liberals from from hollywood you know but they just you know oh those are our boys we love them you know they're crazy but we love them um you know? yeah see you know that's the thing the music did you but have you always that's so fucking that's so classic that you're in the you're right you're in the deep red breadbasket united states right now um were you, did you always have a fan base that leaned right, even during the, the Lowell Georgia days, or, or that is just... Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, wow. Washington, D.C., we went to, uh, one of my kids pulled his, his uh, one of his teeth out in Bob Dole's office, because one of our <laughs> biggest fans was one of his, Bob Dole's his aides, he was a good friend of Billy's, and he and his wife would come to our shows every time. We had, uh, John Kasich took us on a... Um, tour of the Capitol, uh, oh, where you can go in between one, the uh, in, inside dome and the outside dome, there's a whole space, but you have to have a congressman to get permission to go into it. And we went over to the FBI building and all these agents were leaning out going, Hey, see, see. You know, so we had a special like uh, FBI guy that took us down and let us shoot machine guns <laughs> and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there was uh, music just transcended the politics Music fans are music fans, and they didn't care. Like you know, everybody gets a vote. It's like it, it, it's, it's a game. You know, it's like a big game, and like you go to Washington and you go to a bar after it's all said and done, and uh, one side is sitting with the other, getting drunk and saying, "Hey, man, you know, where did you see the shit we're going to pull tomorrow?" <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right, totally. It's like a big, like a game. Yeah, I will, I will really say this. I mean, the game. well, but, but you know, it's like you just—I just got chills up my arm because, like, the truth is. It's a game when you're all playing with the same uh, set of facts. So when you when you talk the two guys you just mentioned, I mean, Kasich and Dole. I mean, I'm longing for those kind of Republicans. You know what I'm saying? Like those yeah, right. those cats were in reality like they might have disagreed with you on certain issues, but at least you could get you know have fun and then you know pull some pranks and and go hardcore. But now it's turned into a a blood sport 
plus there's all this sort of cognitive dissonance, which is really not good for, especially for low information people. It doesn't mean they're not smart. It's just, you know, to me, it's very devious and very dangerous. So that's the thing that I yeah. work. But I love the idea that still through it all, Tackett, regardless of, you know, your affiliations politically or where you live geographically, like the music supersedes everything. And I just feel like in yeah. this time, uh, and I hope other cats, we can, you know, keep moving forward, but I just feel like vibration, like love and vibration, nonverbal healing is essential. I think you guys are as important as medical doctors in this time. I mean, it's just like you are healers. And I just, and I know a lot of people would look at me askance and be like, what the hell is he talking about? But it's no, like, man. you know, Garth, man, uh, you know, Garth Hudson from the band said that the musicians were the angels of a honky tonk. That's right, dude. <laughs> he nailed yeah. it, you know? And I just, I mean, is that, is that something that, um, so it, basically you, you, you were able to derive, like even like you go to the, the the Dylan Museum. I mean, just can you just talk about your level of inspiration and sort of spirit today? And 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 you know, is it something that you need to cultivate? I just there's a lot of people, a lot of artists I know today, younger cats, just not just being weighed down by the weight of everything and weighed down by the ability to you know, how am I going to sing for my supper? You know, how am I going to do this and that and all this uncertainty and sort of. You know, just the idea that, you know, if you're not <clears throat> outside of like, you know, just, you know, there's just a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in it, you know, you're some miles is in it, uh, everybody's in it, but I just wonder what you do to cultivate that your spirit. Well, it's because, you know, the, the little seat as a band is like a family. And so we're, we just are extremely lucky blessed and any word you want to call it to have the career that we've had i mean just no logical reason for it we got this special dispensation to go out and just do whatever the heck we wanted to do and uh it's tough it's a tough business i can't even imagine starting a band now and trying to do something i just can't even think of how 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 you would do it but you know it's just all about being able to play the music you know any the music that you want to play and uh we were we just you know been lucky to be able to have the association with me and Billy Payne and, and Lowell George and, and Richie Hayward and Paul I mean, oh, I, you know yeah. I knew Lowell and then I knew Richie I mean I knew Richie and Lowell and then I Billy and then they got Paul and Kenny and Sam in the band so we were always like friends and stuff it's just like a neighborhood band I knew uh, bands in Jamaica where they it's they taught. You know, the local one of their buddies. They taught him how to play bass. Another guy taught him. Exactly. Exactly. It wasn't like they went out and auditioned bass players. They said, "You, you know, you're our buddy. You need to play the bass, you know, because you're in the band. You're one of the guys." (laughs) That's right. And that's how these bands all got started and everything. It's like, you know, the neighborhood bunch of friends that all got together and and started playing music and making a band. It wasn't like putting on a casting call. I'm putting a band together, so I will need a guitar player that can do this and that. It was like, uh, just, you know, bring your guitar over and let's play. Same with the Beatles, you know, and John and Paul hanging out and bringing George in and stuff like that as friends, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, that's where all the spirit of the music comes from, especially with Little Feet. I mean, we, it's just... Uh, 
it's yeah, no, you it's know, you said it's family feeling of being yeah. able to play play music together. <laughs> and you think about it like it's not you know it's family over hired guns. I mean, like yeah. Leone and Sherard are part of the Little Feet family. I think you know there's something about it. I mean, as we wrap up here, it's just <clears throat> it's just like I feel this really cool uh, sort of. Uh, lineage of Little Feet, especially uh, more than anything else, just because there are still uh, essentially four original members of the group, or you know, you were obviously in the thick of it, even though you didn't start touring with them till later on. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> it's just, and now you see this sort of this this new era with Tony and Scott, and it's like, I just thought I'm like, this is just going to go on. It's just going to continue yeah, on. Yeah, that kind of idea, we like. Like, we've never auditioned a member of Little Feet ever. You know, there's never been. You know, I remember Steve Bruton was pissed off that I just got in the band. He was going, you know, I wanted to audition for that kid, but they just got Fred in the band, you know. He was like a good friend of mine, but he was like, hey, man, I didn't even get a chance to try. (laughs) You know, it's like, uh, it's just always been like, hey, man, come be in the band. Uh, In the case of Scott, you know. I didn't know who Scott was from Adam, and uh, our saxophone player played with him in uh, in Greg Allman's band, and Billy knew him from him sitting in with the Doobie Brothers a lot, so he knew he was a good guitar player. Didn't know he sang or anything, but uh, this saxophone player, uh, Jay Collins, said, hey, you know, this guy has been studying Little Feet since he was 12 years old. He knows everything. You know, he's like studied Lowell all his life. You know, Scott went... His first rock concert his parents took him to was the Let It Roll tour. <laughs> that's in, that, see, but that's so, so heavy. And he stayed up late to see us on Saturday Night Live. He's just telling me yesterday. He's telling me, yeah, now my parents let me stay up late to watch you guys on Saturday Night Live. I would get the, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I was, so it was basically just like, hey, come in and be in the band, you know, come play because his Paul was like definitely sick and couldn't come play and larry campbell was sort of sitting you know filling in for him and but we knew larry and Teresa had their own career so we weren't going to get him in the band so uh you know it's just like okay scott come play and he played one show and we all like cool great you're in the band you know there was never any question like well you know maybe we'll like you could play a few gigs with us and we'll see but it was like okay you know everything you're great well, let me so, ask you. Let me ask you one and question. Tony, we just yeah. knew from from playing with Larry and Teresa's Ramble Band you know, on our Jamaica trips and stuff. Oh, those guys are just just. just they, they, I mean, they, <laughs> they, they, they those guys go way back themselves together too. Oh yeah, he was in Olabel with uh, you know Levon Amy's Amy exactly. No, the one Amy. cat. But you're telling me that uh, when I was listening back to your story about. Uh, Richie and Lowell going at it in, at the Rainbow Theater. And, uh, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden Billy's like, guys, listen, the crowd, man, I think they're digging it, you know? But yeah. but when, when Richie got, did Fred White have a tryout with the band or did you did he just did he just come right in too? The no, drum. He just came in because, you know, uh, I don't even remember why. I'm surprised. I, I can't believe you knew that guy. Man. Yeah. But yeah, because they knew him from they had the same manager, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Little Feet. Wow, wow, you know, and uh, uh, I've forgotten their names now. <laughs> but he he played on like Spanish Moon or something, right, or something like that. Yeah, or? he played on Spanish Moon. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I was the uh, 
I don't remember why Lowell ended up firing Richie. I remember he came by my house and said, I just spent like you know, the whole night like uh, talking to Richie down at the Troubadour when I, you know, I had to fire him and everything. I was like, really? <laughs> you know, and yeah, again, I don't, I don't even know the details of why he felt like he was, you know, he couldn't take it anymore. But uh, well, you know, it's you just, know, it's just funny because I only yeah. a minute before he realized he had made a big mistake. But Richie was one of your most original drummers in the world, and uh, every drummer in in rock and roll and funk and stuff is Richie's one of their idols. You know, everybody's like Richie Hayward, and they'll play, like you know. Carlos Vega and Jeff Carl, they would all go, hey, Richie Hayward. They'd play a lick like Richie, one of Richie's licks and stuff, you know, because they'd studied his playing. What's amazing is that, I mean, he, he was just totally in the flow. It's amazing you could actually, uh, well, it's like, I mean, he, in some ways he was very similar to Jamerson because Jamerson, nobody could play his bass lines. I'm surprised people can play Richie's parts because they were always just off the cuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's totally, you know, and they were different every time. That's what would frustrate Law because Law would just go to great lengths to get this groove oh, going man. between the bass and the drums and everything. And then the next time they play the song, Richie would play something <laughs> totally different. Man, you know? And Law would be like, "That would just drive him out of his." Mind, I, you know, it's you know? it's just there's we just, just spent hours getting this together. What are you doing? And Richie's like, "Every night, every time is a brand new time, man." You know. You know, man, it's just there's something schizophrenic that I can relate to about that. I, I it just the fact that you were there to see it all and take it in and actually be able to play and you know it's uh, brother Tackett. Uh, I'll reach out to you uh, a week from today. You'll be in Tucson, baby. Yeah, man. And we'll uh, we'll do. I'm looking forward to it, man. I can't wait to see you guys and uh, have a you safe. Love it, man. The band's rocking. These last two shows have been just off the top. Man. Well, dude, I'm going to be bringing some serious energy from the crowd, so we're going to raise some collective consciousness and be in the spirit church right. together, all right? All right, man. All right, dude. Say hi to everybody. Much love. It's good to hear you. I will. Thanks for talking to me. Always good to hear you. Yeah, and oh, uh, I'll text you, but I would love to speak to Harry Wilkinson if, if you can get connect. Yeah, us. I'll figure out his. I can't, you know, I have his number somewhere. It's fine. He it's, just gave it to me, but I have it. He'll talk your ear off, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, the guy could play his ass off too. Yo, uh, oh yeah, he's something, man. All right, he man. Come in. He was the first guy that taught me that, like, you know, uh, he would come in with a drum part and a melody line and just say, "This is the song," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he'd have he play this drum part and say, "You know, this is the melody line. Figure out, play whatever chords you want. You know, do whatever you want." I'm like, really? That's what you do? Oh, yeah. That's the way you write jazz games. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's a cat, man. He's one of the cats. All right, dude. I'll, I'll see you in a week, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. Check you later. L- much love. Peace out. Bye-bye. Wait.